Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. Today, we're talking about exactly what you see on TV. Well, not quite, but what you're familiar with from movies like Aaron Brockovich. Look, everybody thinks that lawyers spend all day working with hundreds of plaintiffs suing large multinational corporations and making sure that justice is done for the little guy. Well, at least that's what we like to believe. And that does happen sometimes. And when it does happen, the guy who makes it happen is with us tonight. Well, he's one of the guys, who, one of the people who makes it happen. My guest today is Brett Galloway, and he's a litigator and a class action attorney with McLaughlin and Stern. He works in New York City, and he's going to share with us his secrets to helping people who are wronged by their employers, defending companies who are falsely accused, and rounding up plaintiffs and handling class action lawsuits. Please join me in welcoming Brett Galloway to the Inside BS Show. Brett, welcome to the show. You'll recognize those tones from the closing of the subway doors. So thank you for joining us today. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Dave. This is awesome. Appreciate it. All right. So I want to start off by saying that you know, everybody who's been to the movies is familiar with a class action lawsuit, whether they whether they know it or not. Give us the definition. Explain and it, it talk about how hard it is and what a what a huge deal it is to be even involved in a class action lawsuit in the first place. Sure, class actions are uh, also commonly referred to as complex litigation. There's a reason why the first word is complex because. That's exactly what they are. They are complex litigations, as opposed to single plaintiff cases where you have one client or one or more defendants, and you know who the issues are, you have a person to talk to, you're, you're really just dealing with your own client, their unique um, uh, fact set, and, and you're trying to get a resolution for that. Whereas in a class action, um, you deal with hundreds, thousands, sometimes tens or hundreds of thousands of clients who have or have alleged a common violation against one or more common defendants. So that's the general concept of a class action is really pooling resources where you would have individual plaintiffs who do have a claim, but whose claim may not be that valuable that they would want to bring it or actually have a lawyer to represent them to bring it or be able to ha afford a lawyer to be able to represent them to bring it on an individual basis against typically a Fortune 500 or some form of publicly traded massive corporation. Uh, it's total David versus Goliath situation, but when you have 10,000 David Davids, you can beat the Goliath. Now, to explain to folks with a class action lawsuit, you, you there, there's a bunch of hurdles you have to overcome before you even get up to the plate, right? Tell folks what some of those hurdles are. Like you got to find the people first and then there are judicial hurdles. The class has to be certified. Explain all that to folks. Sure. So when you file a class action, you don't get to wave the magic wand and go, poof, I have a class. Um, you need to go through a lot of, well, a, 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 a fair amount of hurdles, as you put it, before you can actually get what's called certification of that class. So you start with one or more people. Those are called the class representatives or the named plaintiffs. Those people act as the spearheads and, and the, the face and the name of the representative class. And they represent the class members. And, in, and for doing so, they get a service award. They get money on top of what the pro rata share 
to the other class members would be. And they've earned that money. They've put their name on the complaint. They've reached out to lawyers. They've participated in discovery. They've sat for depositions. They've they've thrown their name out into the public because these are public filings. So absolutely 100%. We are um, we are always looking and, and typically I've never seen a court not award a service award to a named plaintiff. But you have a named plaintiff, you file a complaint, you style it as a class action because you say this employer has committed a wrong and this wrong isn't unique to this one person, John Smith. We have reason and belief to believe that this company's pr practices and policies are uniform amongst 100 other John Smiths in multiple locations across multiple states. Um, and we make what's called, we, we, we allege class action violations. Now my specialty is in employment class actions and there's two types of certifications. And now it's time once again for the Sandrowski Business Minute. And today we have tax expert, Catherine Raker. All right, Catherine, do I need to pay quarterly estimates on my taxes? And how do I know when it's time for me to pay quarterly estimates? Because I think most people just think of taxes as a once a year thing. That's a good question. Um, so, and it all depends on the facts and circumstances. If you're a W-2 employee where your employer takes regular withholding, you likely don't need to pay quarterly taxes. However, if most of your income comes from investment or self-employment, you should be paying quarterly estimates. The government likes to receive taxes in even increments, and that's why withholdings work so well, because it's a weekly or a monthly withdrawal. But the quarterly payments on your investments, your investment income, or on your self-employment income are necessary to keep you from paying underpayment penalties. Ooh, nobody wants those underpayment penalties. Okay, that'll do it for today's Sandrowski Business Minute. If you need help with this or any other tax-related issue, please call 866-717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective. Um, I can get into, there's a, a federal certification under what's called 216B, and there's a state certification uh, under Rule 23, which is a opt-out class versus an opt-in class, somewhat complicated. All you need to really know is you need to convince a judge that everybody's in the same boat. And you can't do that just on the pleadings. You got to go through a lot of discovery. You got to take tons of depositions. You got to get a lot of documents. You got to really convince otherwise stickler judges that don't want to put the pressure on the defendants to otherwise have to settle. Because once you have a class certified, it's typically the death knell for a defendant. Because now the defendant isn't litigating against one little Joe Schmo, they're litigating a thousand Joe Schmoes. And that's very expensive for a company. And that's why courts typically make it somewhat difficult or at least raise the bar and burden uh, especially under what's called a Rule 23 opt-out class to um, to certify the class. And then once you get a class certified, meaning you've convinced the judge that everybody's in the same boat, then you can proceed as one uniformed army against a common defendant. Now, you, you described all that. Here's the real kicker, right? Who's paying the bill for you guys to do all that work? <laughs> Well, that's the, the, the $64,000 question, right? Um, so we are. 
typically plaintiffs, class action attorneys, such as myself and my firm, take these cases on contingency. Um, we take them on contingency because typically two reasons. One, the people that we're defending don't have the money to pay us. Uh, you know, these are typically hourly paid blue collar employees um, that are, you know, paid minimum wage, if not darn near close to it. And they can't afford six, seven, eight hundred dollar an hour New York City lawyers to go out and, and, you know, fight the good fight on their behalf. Um, and we take the case on a contingency because if after we're done doing our own pre-litigation due diligence, we're able to determine, yes, there is a claim. This is going to be a profitable case. We are going to get a recovery either through a settlement or a final adjudication. It makes financial sense for our firm to take it on a contingency because we'll get money at the end. And we're large enough as a firm that we can afford to front the costs and the time and everything and basically wait it out. Now, there's a second way that the plaintiff's lawyers can get paid, and this is the rarer way because these cases rarely go to trial. I would venture to say that 95% plus of them settle pre-trial. Um, I can count on one hand the number of cases that I have been in that have gone to trial. Um, and that's because if the defendant loses at trial, the FLSA, which stands for the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal statute that you sue under for these cases, and the accompanying state labor laws under New York State Labor Law for me in New York, have what's called attorney fee shifting provisions in the law. So if the defendants lose, they pay the damages to the class, and then they pay my attorney's fees on top of that. So there's two ways that we, we get paid, either through settlement and taking a contingency fee on that settlement, or through final adjudication, going the distance, and then getting awarded our attorney's fees through the court. And do can you? I, I don't know the answer to this question, so I, I think I think it makes sense for me to ask it. Can you continue to add to the class as the case continues? Where's the line that cuts it off? That's a really good question, um, and it's somewhat blurred because <laughs> a good defendant's lawyer is gonna if they're going to, you know, be worth their salt, they're going to try to limit the scope of the class. They're going to try to make it as small as possible. And a good plaintiff's lawyer that's worth his salt is going to try to expand the class as far as possible. So you may have, and this often comes up um, in, in a lot of what's called a, my time rounding cases, and we can get into that later if you want. But let's say there's a, uh, a large cooperative housing complex in New York City that has a maintenance department, a security department, um, an administrative department, uh, a, a housekeeping department, a plumbing department. And they're all governed by different collective bargaining agreements and they're all subject to different supervisors or under different supervisors with different policies. And my named plaintiff, my class representative is just in the maintenance department, but he utilizes the same time clocks as every other employee in the building. Well, I'm going to bring a class action on behalf of every employee in the building that utilizes the same time clocks. The defendant's going to come in and say, no, 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 no. You just have a maintenance guy. And therefore, you can just bring a case on behalf of the maintenance people. So then we go through discovery and I take depositions and I later find out that the security people use that time clock and the power plant employees use that time clock and the garage employees use that time clock. And they're all subject to that same and similar 
um, you know, time rounding violation or whatever violation we've alleged in the complaint. And then we can expand the class mid uh, proceeding or mid litigation, or we can add what's called subclasses to the existing complaint. Yeah, it's funny. Funny you mentioned time rounding issues. So I worked in a place that was subject to a class action lawsuit and the lawsuit was uh, was brought on behalf of the employees and the star witness was a whistleblower from the human resources department who uh, testified that it was policy to shave off point ones and point twos from people's timesheets. Right. So they would they would punch. But the, you know, at the end of the day, the, the you know, HR department would review the timesheets and shave off all the point ones and point twos. If it was point three or above, they would leave it on there. But if it was point one or point two, they would shave it off. The thinking is, hey, that adds up over time. Well, obviously, the person was disgruntled and they, you know, went to a bunch of the people who worked in some of the, you know, some of the influential employees who worked in different departments. And they said, listen, this has been going on for a long time. I don't think you should say anything. I think we should all go see a lawyer. And they went and saw a lawyer and lo and behold, guess what? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I, I wish I would have given you my business card to hand out. Oh, that was, God, God, that's like 30 years ago, but that's the kind of thing, you know, and these, these types of things, you know, you, when we think about like me personally, when I think about class action lawsuits, I think, well, it's gotta be a huge pain in the ass for the lawyers to round up all these people and that sort of thing. But when you describe a case like this, like a time rounding case like this, everybody works in the same place. So you say, Hey, listen, you know, we're all, you're all in the same boat. If you, you know, the next time you have a union meeting, if it's a union shop or the next time um, you get a chance let's you know let's invite everybody over to a over to a bar I'll buy a round of drinks and we'll see who else has been exposed to this and the next thing you know you got 50 people you got 100 people and you're off to the races now tell me what the threshold is for your for your firm right because these cases cost a lot to work up it's not just your time it's not just you and an associate and a paralegal you know slaving away on this this is you have to get investigators you need expert witnesses you need all kinds of stuff what is, what are the guidelines at your firm for deciding whether or not to take on a case like this um it, it, it's somewhat discretionary. You know, there's no hard and fast rule. Uh, and McLaughlin and Stern, uh, you know, trust myself and my, my colleague, Lee Shaloff, we co-chair the class action pro practice uh, at our firm. Trust us to be able to look at a case and determine whether or not it's a winner or a loser. If one of the first things we look at is the perspective size of the class or the perspective class. Is it 20 people? Probably not worth our time. Is it 100 people? Yeah, I'm a little bit more interested, but it's going to, you know, you're going to have to incentivize me with some really good facts. Once we start getting like 250 to 500 people plus, then it starts making more economic sense for our firm to take this on a contingency fee basis because our potential reward then gets well into the seven or eight figure range. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we do, you know, a risk reward scenario. Now, it's been the case, although extraordinarily rarely, and this is why we've been able to build a successful class action contingency practice, that we lose cases. And we we are out the time that we put in, but more importantly, we're out the hard money that we put out. Um, you're, you're exactly right. We pay for experts. We pay for process servers. We pay for filing fees. We pay for research charges. We have a lot of internal costs that none of the clients would ever even think about. 
uh, mediator fees. I mean, these are in the tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, sometimes you lose, but you got to make up those losses with wins. Now, the great thing about the class action practice and the contingency practice especially is courts will award you a multiplier on your time when you apply for a fee award. So let's say I settle a case for a million dollars and my contingency fee is a third of that. So I'm going to make an application to the court for $333,000. But if my lodestar, which means that the time that I've actually put into the case, that I've entered my manual time, comes out to only $150,000, I'm asking the court for more than a 2x multiplier on my time. Now, courts will award that to me. Courts will come back and say, yes, Mr. Galloway, because you've taken on the risk, because you fronted the cost, because you fronted your time with no guarantee of getting paid at all, you're entitled to a premium. And courts, at least in New York and most federal courts in the country, will give multipliers of two to six times the lodestar rate. So that's where we make up our money on cases that we lose. Now, again, we don't lose often because we like to vet our cases properly, but um, it's 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 a sweet spot for the lawyers when you get a good multiplier on your time. And is there uh, do do you ha- how good is your gut when it comes to settling? You know, there's there there are there are companies that never create a precedent. They don't want to settle. They have unlimited resources, so they like to take things the distance, even if they got a loser. But how, you know, how good are, have you and, and your partner gotten at being able to say, this is one that's definitely going to settle? Like, can, can you tell when you get a case that's, you know, it's so, it, it's so, just so grievous. It's, it, it, nobody's going to want it to be in the papers. They're not going to want the publicity of, you know, a thousand people who've been screwed out of thousands of dollars over 10 years or whatever. Can you really tell up front which ones are going to settle and which ones you're going to have a problem with? 90% of the time. Um, and I've got a, a, I've got a decent, decently good example on this, but yeah, I mean, we can look at a case and and I, I can look at time and payroll records, just that alone. I can look at your pay stub and just from looking at your pay stub, I can determine whether or not there's a violation. And I don't want to exactly go into it, but I, I, I've, I have an eye as to exactly what to look for on that pay stub to determine whether or not the employer is properly compensating you. And if I can see that and I, I, I know who the employer is and they've got deep enough pockets to fund a, a decent you know, settlement, I have a, a fairly strong confidence that they'll, that they'll come to a, a resolution fairly early. And we've had a lot of these early um, settlements, you know, come forward. And I I mean, not to be too self-aggrandizing, but we've also created a name, at least in New York, uh, for bringing these cases and and having a reputation of taking them the distance. So a lot of firms that we go against, we see as repeat defense firm clients, and they know us and we know them, and they know what we're capable of. And and I think that, well, I don't think because I know that because I've spoken to these lawyers, they speak to their clients and I know what they're saying. They're going to say, listen, Mr. Galloway and his partner, Mr. Shaloff and their you know team are going to take you to trial. Their firm can afford to take you to trial. They know what they're doing. So it's more economical for you to just s- stipulate to a class and then settle on behalf of that stipulated class and then get yourself complete resolution and, and go to sleep tonight and be done with it. So sometimes we don't even have to get a class certified by the court. 
Sometimes we file a complaint, we go to a mediation, and we go to a mediation, we know going into the mediation that we're going to settle on behalf of a proposed class. And then we settle on behalf of a make-believe class that isn't certified yet. And then we take that settlement and we go to a judge and we say, judge, look at how good we did. We took a, a single plaintiff and we got 500 people, $3 million. Now will you certify this class with the settlement already in hand? And the same way that a judge would look at a settlement on a pre on an already certified class, the judge will do the same thing and go through the factors to determine whether or not the settlement is substantially and procedurally fair, whether or not the request for attorney's fees is fair, and he can preliminarily certify the class in the context of a settlement. So sometimes we do that as well. Um, now, we, we, we've had extraordinarily difficult cases where, you know, that, that have lasted a decade, you know, one in particular against Apple, which recently settled. I can't really talk about the settlement itself, although it's a I was going to I was going to ask you about that. Tell people about because that that was, you know, it would seem like from an employer standpoint, if you explain it to a lay lay person, it would seem kind of innocuous, right? It was about bag checks and they were waiting around for for while their while their bags were being checked. Right. Isn't that the case? Yeah. Yeah. Bag checks and security checks for uh, Apple technology. It was. Um, it was a case of first impression, uh, at least in California. In 2012, 2011 and 12, Amazon got sued um, on behalf of their warehouse workers. And the warehouse workers filed a federal lawsuit and they said, hey, listen, we're in these Amazon warehouses. We um, you know, clock in and clock out and we get our bag checks uh, every time that we you know, clock in and clock out. And the uh, the, the, the case was filed in California. It went actually up to the United States Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court said against Amazon employees, no, you're not getting paid for that time because it's not integral and indispensable to the primary job duty. Now, what that meant in the context of the Amazon employees was their primary job duty was taking stuff off shelves, putting it in a box, and sending it out. And the bag check had no bearing on their ability to put stuff off the shelf in a box and send it out. Now compare that to the guy who has to put on the radioactive suit to go work in the nuclear power plant. The donning and doffing of the nuclear suit is integral and indispensable to this primary job duty, which is keeping him alive. Same concept applies for the cop that has to put on his bulletproof vest and his gun and his holster. That's keeping him alive. That allowed, that's integral and indispensable to his primary job duty, which is keeping the city, city streets safe. So the Supreme Court in, uh, in, in around 2013 in a case called Busk v. Integrity Staffing Solutions said, nope, that time isn't compensable. We had filed our case against Apple for the same exact allegation before the Supreme Court case came out. But we filed under California state law in addition to federal law. California state law has a different standard than the federal law of integral and indispensable. California state says, so long as you remain under your employer's control, you have to get paid for that time. It's pretty difficult to argue that if you're physically not allowed to leave an Apple store before you go through a security check, and that's Apple's policy, that you can't leave before you go through a security check. And oh, by the way, you clock out before you go through a security check. And they search your bag. And everybody's got a little card in their wallet. And if you have an Apple phone, you take out that card, you take out the serial number and you show, hey, this is actually my personal Apple device. 
that could take five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, depending on the weight, the time of year. Everybody's been to an Apple store during the holidays. It's like a, it's, it's a circus. Sure. In there. sure. Um, so the California standard being a different standard, our case was still still very alive and well in California, despite the Supreme Court decision again in, uh, in the bus case against Amazon. So we proceeded in California. It was a real roller coaster of a case. Um, the case got dismissed originally in federal court. We had to appeal it up to the Ninth Circuit. We won in the Ninth Circuit. Then we got kicked back down to the California Supreme Court. And Apple's main defense was, well, you can choose not to bring a bag into work and you could choose not to bring a phone into work and therefore you don't have to go through the security check. Well, I mean, it's, it's a defense, but I could also choose to show up to work naked. And, uh, you know, what happens if I have kids in school? Like I, I'm not, I'm not and, and God forbid something happens to them. I, I'm not supposed to have a phone on me. So in a unanimous uh, decision from the California Supreme Court, we created new law in California on that case. And that was a case that's still pending. Uh, settlement isn't finally approved yet um, uh, for that matter, but you know, we, we're, we're cautiously optimistic that it will be fairly soon. Um, you know, that's, that's a case in which we, we spent better part of a decade on um, several hundred thousand dollars, I think close to half a million dollars in out-of-pocket costs, uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars of attorney time on, and we lost originally. And we had to fight our way through it. Um, and that, you want to talk about a David and Goliath bout. That was a David and Goliath bout. You know, we went up against Littler Mendelssohn and Gibson Dunn and some of the, you know, top preeminent attorneys in the entire country when it comes to these types of arguments. So um, we're, we're really proud of that case. We're really proud of that decision. We're really proud of that result. Um, we're, we're, you know, we, we hang up, we hold our heads high that we were able to convince the California court that. Apple's defense of employee choice isn't a applicable uh, defense in these kind of cases. And in our wake, there's been a landslide of California cases against large employers, Nike, Converse, Best Buy, Dick's Sporting Goods. All of these retailers have gotten hit with these class actions in California and they all cite our case. So I don't know. So, nobody, you know, think about think, a, basket yet. think about that for a minute, right? Uh, think about, first of all, that's a great job on, on, on your part, but think about from a, from a business perspective, how, just how, I mean, if, just from an employee relations point of view, right? You got to punch out and now you're going to wait around for 25 minutes to have your bag checked, you know, you're, you might miss your transportation. I mean, you can't plan for your workday to end. It's just, it's just a terrible way to run a company from an, from an employee relations perspective. I, I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine, like, I, I know why the policy was in place because the company doesn't want to pay for that 20 minutes that they're standing there waiting, right? Because that 20 minutes multiplied by their 300 employees at every location adds up to a lot of money. But the, the same thing is true of just buying good the goodwill of the employees. Hey, listen, you're going to have to get your bag checked. We're going to put the time clock right next to the door, get your bag checked, and then punch out. I mean, Really, does it have to be, does everything have to be this complicated? It's crazy. <laughs> so that's actually, it's, it's a great point that you bring up. That's one of the factors that the courts look into in terms of whether or not the time is compensable or not, is the ease of the employer's ability to track this time. 
Now, Apple, move the freaking time clock. Put it next to the for, door. <laughs> forget about the time clocks. You've been to an Apple store, right? Everybody has. Yeah. You go to an Apple store. Do you see a cash register anywhere? No. No, they could you just swipe the their time on their phone. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You, you see the managers walking around with the iPads. Right. On those iPads is how the employees clock in and out. So if you go to a manager, the manager conducts your bag check. They have the iPad st- literally strapped to their Give hand. an iPad to the security guy. Yeah, that's all you got to do. They, it's they crazy. Can, so, so yeah, so Apple out of all the companies had had the most ridiculous defense, to, in, in my opinion, to that argument in terms of not being able to properly track their employees' time. Of course they could track their employees' time. They're the number one technology company in the world. They, they could build time clocks into people's heads if they really wanted to. So, yes. Making forcing employees to clock out and then subject themselves to a security check, in our opinion, was um, a pretty. Uh, pretty no, it's a great, great result. Congratulations to you. Yeah. Great, great case. Um, I'm going to ask you this question. I want you to take a minute and think about the answer. I, I think it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be a really good, uh, a good education for the folks who are listening, folks who are watching. I want you to talk about how you convince, uh, first of all, I want you to talk about how a settlement works in a class action. And then I want you to talk about how you convince everybody that this is a good idea to take this settlement, or maybe you don't even have to convince everybody, but you know, you got multiple people now who you have to make sure are okay with what you're going to do. So I want you to explain how that works. I want you to do it in just one minute. I want to remind folks that the Inside BS show is brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. For over 35 years, Sandrowski has been helping people with dispute advisory, business valuation, litigation support, forensic accounting, risk management, and just plain old taxes. You want to pay less in taxes. You own a business. You got to call Sandrowski. You got a dispute. You want to know what something's worth. You got to call Sandrowski. You need an expert to testify in court to verify your financial documents, you got to call Sandrowski. They do all of this stuff. You know, if you listen to the show, one of the things I like to talk about the most is this little secret weapon that Sandrowski can deploy called the Qualified Small Business Exemption. If you want to sell your business, when you sell your business, you're going to get, hopefully, a truckload of money. You're going to have to pay taxes on that truckload of money. But if you want to pay less taxes, if you're in specific industries and your business is structured a certain way, some of that gain that you get from selling your business can be excluded legally from taxes. Now, in order to do this, your business has to be structured a certain way. You have to be in a specific industry. And the only way to know if your business is structured appropriately, if you're in the right industry, is to call Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. You see, they're one of the few accounting firms in the United States that focuses on this issue. The big four, it's not worth their time, right? You're going to make $50 million from selling your business. The big four don't care about that. They want to work with huge companies. $50 million is a lot of money to everybody who has a business like yours. You want to make sure you keep as much of that money as you can. Give Sandrowski a call. Now, here's the thing. You've got to structure your business the appropriate way at least five years before you're going to sell it in order to qualify for this exemption. So basically, the best time to call Sandrowski would have been when you started your business. The second best time is right now, today. So listen, you got nothing to lose. Give them a call. They're good people. They'll talk to you. If they think they can help you, you, you're going to end up meeting with them. You can meet with them virtually. If you're in Chicago, you can meet with them in their offices. 
They'll help you get everything set up so that you can save so much in taxes. It'll be, it's just ridiculous. I mean, I heard a story the other day when I was at the Sandrowski offices myself, they saved somebody $10 million in tax exposure. That's real money, folks. Give Sandrowski a call, 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. If you want a business development plan that is based on building relationships and on thought leadership, Get my Revenue Roadmap Guide. It's free. It's my gift to you for listening, for watching us here on YouTube, for listening to the show. All you need to do is go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info. You can download the same guide I use with my clients to help them build their book of business. It works with accountants, with lawyers, with consultants, with engineers. If you're in a professional services firm, this guide is going to help you. It's your business development plan. You can customize it for your firm. Revenue Roadmap Guide. Enter your contact info. Download it today. My guest today is Brett Galloway. He's talking to us right now about class action lawsuits because I think it's fascinating and the stories he's telling are fantastic. He also does complex commercial litigation with single plaintiffs or with single defendants. He can help you with all that stuff. You can give him a call at 212-448-1100. 212-448-1100. All right, Brett, tell us about convincing First of all, do you have to convince the whole class to take a settlement or is it just like a, a majority rules? How does it work to get them to take the settlement? Uh, yeah, great to see you again, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I've been seeing you over the last month and a half. Um, uh, but the short answer is no. And that's what the federal judge is there for. The judge is basically the referee when a settlement comes for a class action to make sure that the entirety of the process is fair. Because technically, I, as the plaintiff's class action lawyer, are representing individuals thousands, if not tens of thousands of individuals that I've never met, that I've never spoken with, that don't know me from Adam, right? So I settled a case on their behalf. The notice goes out to those individuals informing them about the settlement, and they have three options. Really, I would say the majority of them have three times, they have three options. A, you can accept the settlement and say, you know, thank you very much and wait for your check to come in the mail. B, you can object to the settlement and say, I'd still like to receive some money, but I don't think that this part of the settlement is fair and I'd like to be heard before the judge. Or C, you can opt out of the settlement and you can say, I would like to pursue my own case. I don't want to be a part of the class. I want to bring it as an individual, which happens sometimes. Or I don't think that the employer did anything wrong and I think that this case is bogus to begin with. I don't want to, you know, I didn't pass go, don't even give me $200. Um, those are typically the three options that they have. And then when we go back before the judge for what's called a final fairness hearing, which is after the notice has gone out to the class members, after they've had 45 or 60 days to either opt in, opt out, or object, then we'll go to the judge and we'll say, you know, your honor, out of a thousand people who received notice, Nobody objected, four people opted out, and everybody else is cool with it. And the judge will say, okay, well, that's a pretty good settlement. And in that case, I'm going to approve it. And those four or five people that opted out don't get to participate. If somebody objects, they can show up and they can state their opinion. And the settlement will still probably get approved, depending on what the objection is. But that's a long-winded way of saying, no, you don't need to get everybody involved. Um, all right, Brett, you know, in the intervening time between 
finishing this interview and starting the interview, I've heard some great things about you and about your firm. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to tell us about some of the other things that you do and some of the other things that your firm does. Sure. Uh, I always appreciate the accolades and, and the, uh, the free publicity here, so I'll take the opportunity to get it. Uh, McLaughlin and Stern, of which uh, is where I'm a, a partner, uh, is a fully full-service uh, firm. We have our main office in Manhattan, New York. Uh, we have offices in Long Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, and two offices in Florida, in West Palm, and Naples. Uh, the firm does literally everything, uh, including the kitchen sink, uh, with the exception of immigration and some personal injury cases. Uh, we tend to stay away from those. Um, the main areas of the firm would be litigation, which is where uh, I do you know, some complex commercial litigation, both plaintiffs and defendants side. We do a lot of trust and estates work. Uh, we're one of the top preeminent uh, trust and estates firm in New York, certainly, if not in the country. We routinely get accolades for that, uh, as well as matrimonial uh, and corporate matters. So anything really in that realm, if you have issues in New York or Florida, um, you know, especially with high net worth individuals, the firm has a great uh, track record in representing those guys and uh, gas. All right, perfect. So Brett, now this is the time in our interview where I usually ask people, to give us three things we should remember from our time together. I know you have fantastic recall. I know you have a great memory because you are, after all, a trial lawyer. But I don't think you can remember a month and a half ago, which for people who are listening and people who are watching was just a few minutes ago. So here's what I'd like to do. Instead of three things we should take away from our time together, Brett, why don't you give us three things that people should look for or three things people should ask an attorney if they have a plaintiff's case before they hire them? What are three things people should ask an attorney before they hire them? What are three things people should look for before they hire them if they have a plaintiff's case? Sure, that's 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 a, a great question. Um, off the top of my head, because this actually came up this morning, is what is your proposed fee structure? Because in plaintiff's cases, there's two, if not three ways to go. Either pay me or a plaintiff's lawyer hourly on a retainer, or we take your case on a contingency. Uh, I do both, our firm does both. Um, typically, the plaintiffs opt for a contingency retainer because they pay no money up front, uh, and we you know, share the risk, and we also share the reward. And in New York, plaintiff's contingency fee retainers run between 25 to 33%, with the majority being around a third of the recovery. Um, so if you are a plaintiff looking to bring a lawsuit, I would have that conversation up front with the lawyer uh, and see, A, you know, what their take is on the case in terms of what they think the potential recovery is, B, what the timeline for that recovery is, because cases range from settling in two weeks to, you know, 12 years. Um, and uh, to, to, you know, determine what's best for that plaintiff. You know, if some plaintiffs are more financially stable at the beginning of the cases, at, at the beginning of the case than others. In my world, where I'm dealing with individuals that have either a recently been fired or are about to, you know, quit their job because something bad has happened, they might not have that much liquid cash. So a contingency fee is a better option. That being said, there are individuals that run the full gamut, and if they do have, you know, more substantive resources, or if they think that their case is worth a significant amount and they're unwilling to just give away a third of it to the lawyer, 
and they go the hourly route. But um, you know, we offer both options as well as what's called a hybrid contingency option, where you can pay half of our hourly rates, uh, build against the contingency retainer, which we collect on the end. So definitely finding out what the best um, uh, pay structure for you is, is is an important question as a plaintiff. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, another good and important point is uh, for a plaintiff to determine what level of comfort they have with the publicity that their case is going to have. Uh, this has come up a few times. So as a plaintiff, you can settle your case pre-litigation or post-litigation pre-filing of a complaint or after filing a complaint. If you hire a lawyer like me or any other plaintiff's lawyer, we send a demand letter, we can send a demand letter first. And in that demand letter, we can do some scary saber rattling and threaten all the things that we would put in the complaint. Sometimes we even attach and draft a complaint saying, look, if you don't you know, do what we need you to do, this is getting filed in 24 to 48 hours. Now, do we have a deal or don't we? Um, the benefit to a pre-litigation settlement, the majority of the time, there are certain legal exceptions, is that the plaintiff's name isn't thrust out into the world of uh, you know people that know how to use Google. Uh, and their settlement can be confidential, and that certainly has benefits for the employer as well. Once you actually file a complaint, that's a publicly filed document. And your last name, especially as the named plaintiff in a class action or any case, is therefore searchable. So if you're terminated from a job and you need another job and you think your employer is going to run a search for you, there's a chance that, that employer can find out that you filed a previous case against your past employer. Now, under the law, future employers aren't supposed to take that into consideration, but I'm a realist and I think most people are, and that happens. So having candid conversations with the plaintiffs about their comfort level in terms of the publicity that they'll have pre and post filing, I think is also really important to have, uh, excuse me, uh, to know. Um, and then last but not least, uh, you know, I would, I would ask about the firm that you're working with. You know, are you signing up to work with a solo practitioner or are you signing up to work with a team at a larger firm? Because as a solo practitioner, that guy might or woman might have 10 cases and might not be able to you know, devote the time and resources necessary to your individual case. That being said, their hourly rate might be lower or their contingency fee might be more attractive. If you want to go with a bigger firm, you're going to get more resources. You're going to get associate help. You're going to get paralegal help. You're going to get maybe some you know, more seasoned veterans in the area, not to downplay or who solo practitioners in any capacity, but that's just the way that, you know, this cookie crumbles. Um, so know who you're signing up with, not just the lawyer, but, but who his team is and who his backstop is and what resources he can put and throw at that case, especially in the class action context, when a firm has to finance that case and the, and the, the case could take 10, 15 years and the firm will have to finance 500,000 or a million dollars. I mean, that's what these cases take to cross the finish line if they're serious litigations. Small and solo practitioners without the benefit of litigation financing sometimes can't afford those. Uh, and they may have to bring in later larger firms such as McLaughlin and Stern and able to be able to help them out. So to be able to consider whether or not you want to do that from the front or from the beginning or later on uh, would be another consideration that I would recommend.
I think those are three great points. And, you know, to your last point, the the question that I always counsel people to ask is for other cases that the particular lawyer has taken to trial, Yep. right? Because if you're not familiar with the practice of law, there are actually people out there and they exist in the, in the labor and employment law field. They exist in personal injury. There are, there are firms out there that will sign up the case and try and negotiate a settlement as quickly as possible and then get out of it without ever going to trial. The issue with that is everyone knows these lawyers don't take cases to trial and they're never going to get a settlement that's fair. So if you're if you're doing your due diligence, you want to see and they can give you case numbers or they can give you they can point you in the direction of the case online. It's all publicly accessible. You want to see cases that results that this lawyer has had with taking cases to trial. I don't care if he's only taken or she's only taken three cases to trial. You know, if they've taken none, who's going to settle with them before a trial? Very few people. It's going to they're going to push them. They're going to push them to the limit. That, that, so that's a very fair point and absolutely another uh, excellent example of what any plaintiff should discuss. So I know five lawyers that if they're complaining that if I'm going up against them, I know what I'm going to settle for and how long I'm gonna, it's going to take me to settle. I know five other lawyers that I know I'm in for a fight and I'm going to have to go the distance. And, and, I, and I tailor the case and I tailor the client's expectations to my opposing counsel. Um, the same way that I would hope and think that you know, other lawyers know me as somebody that has and will take it the distance. Uh, and I think that you know, we're able to, as a result of that, get a really good result for our clients because the you know, lawyers know that we have the resources and the capability and the experience, the successful experience, to take these cases through trial successfully. All righty, Brett Galloway, the master of class actions. Thank you so much for joining us and joining us again. You're the first return guest <laughs> on the Inside BS show and you returned in the same exact show. So thank you, Brett, for joining us. You're a good sport. I really appreciate you answering those few questions with us today. Thank you, folks, for joining us. My name is Dave Lorenzo. This is the Inside BS Show. We're back here again tomorrow with another edition of our show. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.